0: It is Wednesday, February 7th. Welcome
1: on Into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Coming up on the show today, we're talking about a Trump legal case. Which one, you're asking? Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about the one that involves whether or not he should be on the ballot in Colorado. Uh, This is going before the Supreme Court tomorrow. By the way, you can listen to those oral arguments on WHYY live tomorrow starting around 10 a.m., I Mm -hmm, believe. mm -hmm. Uh, But we're going to talk about the case today with a couple of experts, Lisa Tucker and Kermit Roosevelt. We're going to break it all down because it's complicated. It's also pretty fascinating. Then back half of the show, end of the show, we're going to talk to two actors, performers, Rob McClure and Maggie Lakeus. They live in South Philly. Yay. They're married. That's all great. But what's really, really interesting is mm-hmm. that they're also the co-stars of Mrs. Doubtfire the musical, which is, if you know the movie, about two people getting Going through divorced. Divorce. So we're going to talk to them about that experience going on the road with this show, uh, which was on Broadway and is now touring around the country, is now in Philadelphia where they live. So we're really excited about that conversation. And you folks know this. You can email us if you have Mm -hmm. comments about any of these topics. You can call us. The email is studio2 at WHYY.org. Stacey's already chiming in about about Trump. We'll get to her later. Um, You can also call 888-477-9499. First, Cherry Greg, some news headlines. Start us off.
0: Yeah, um... To all my bookworms out there, branches of the Free Library of Philadelphia sounded the alarm for their individual bookworms this week, alerting them that they will no longer be able to post on social media in real time. And they point to our new mayor, Sherelle Parker, as the reason why. And you have that that look on your face, Avi. Let me explain. Let me explain. Yeah, this comes after the Parker administration enacted a vetting process for all public information and social media posts. Avi, can you imagine (laughs) dozens of municipal agencies must now send drafts of everything from Instagram posts to news releases to the mayor's communication office for approval before they can post it before this time. Of course, city departments were free to handle their own social media. They were semi-autonomous. Yeah, they did. Now this rollout—they were
1: treated like you might say adults.
0: They were. They were because they are, and they're getting paid to do their
1: jobs. So I'm not editorializing there, folks. I'm just I'm describing the situation. Yeah, Yeah, this rollout
0: will apply to offices big and small, from city health clinics to rec centers, and it's creating worry about potential public information backlog, but. The administration has already loosened up a bit, allowing some departments to post non-sensitive information. Parker's administration says, don't worry about censorship. Avi, I give him six months because it sounds like (laughs) a lot of work for the person who has to check up all the IG posts from all these
1: agencies. I would not want to do that job. (laughs) Let me tell you, I I really I've read about this. The Inquirer Mm -hmm. Daily News have covered it extensively. And I still find myself asking the question, what is this trying to solve? Was this an issue were like libraries posting things that were way out of pocket. Not in my experience. I hadn't seen anything that really raised my Especially eyebrows. the library. A lot Especially of people, yeah. <laughs> um, and I have to say, I don't want to be mean, but the memo that clout, the clout column obtained announcing this policy um, had this big message in all caps, no media interviews, social media posts, blah, 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 without it being approved in advance by Mayor's Communications. And that message itself had a pretty bad typo in it. I'm like, I'm like, if you're asking me to send you all of our communications for approval, please don't make your announcement of that policy with a typo. I'm just saying that's the bar I'm setting. It's a low bar.
0: Yeah. What I'll say to that before we move on is that mayors typically, when they the new yeah, administrations come up. in, yeah. they do this and then they realize this is too much work and they let people go back to doing their jobs my prediction, again, six months, six we'll months? check in and see if they even make it to three. So <laughs> I don't want to be too snarky. Yeah.
1: Maybe they're going to keep it in place now just to spite us. I don't know. Because I, I was such a such a meanie about mm-hmm. it. Um, OK, so for one story about too much red tape, maybe mm-hmm. to perhaps not enough red tape. Yeah, there was a pretty alarming report yesterday from New Jersey State Commission of Investigation. And it's all about the addiction recovery industry mm-hmm. in the Garden State. As you might suspect, lots of money is pouring into this industry through opioid settlements and because state governments are rightly investing in opioid recovery and addiction recovery because it's a huge problem. Yeah. Um, But what this State Commission of Investigation report found is that the the private actors who Mm -hmm. get a lot of this public money can be unscrupulous, Mm -hmm. can be unethical, and there might be a larger problem here. In fact, the report is titled... The Dirty Business Behind wow. Getting Clean. That's yeah. a pretty strong title mm-hmm. for a, a 106 page report with appendix. Um, I'll, I'll give you some examples, Cherry. So they say that there's corruption, there's abuse. Um, There's inappropriate sexual relationships at some of these centers between Mm. staff and residents, staff pocketing money. There was a Cherry Hill facility, uh, according to this report, where owners used company credit cards to pay lavish vacations, vet bills, and even their son's college tuition. There's also this practice called patient brokering, which is technically illegal, but there seem to be loopholes around it, in which... uh, People accept payments for referring patients to certain other facilities. So uh, it seems like a mess. Mm -hmm. And boy, according to at least this report, it does seem like this industry needs some oversight.
0: Meanwhile, drug overdoses killed almost 2,400 New Jersey residents last year, Mm. 2,900 the year before. So my thoughts go to the families of those suffering from addiction, Avi. It's not easy getting help for your loved one, or if you're trying to fix your life and heal, to hear that you're being exploited. Or could be at a facility that's, you know, being... Um, on this list, possibly, or or doing some of these practices is very scary. Hopefully lawmakers will step up because this report has some recommendations, including strengthening laws that are already on the books, dealing with misconduct by corporations and nonprofits, banning deceptive marketing practices. There's a whole list. So there are things that can
1: be done and hopefully they will step up in New Jersey. And I do not want to cast aspersions on everyone who works in this field. No, there's a lot of people because doing tough great work. work yeah. And a lot of people do great work, miraculous work. But if there are bad actors that poisons the whole well. And we know this in any in mm-hmm. any this is a sprawling network of private providers that subsist basically on on, you know, government subsidy mm-hmm. and if there are even a handful of bad actors, it yeah. makes it harder for everybody.
0: Yeah, it really does. One thing that is Gonna be hard on some folks in Philadelphia. Mm, Avi, tell me, is insurance premium premiums okay? Drivers in Philly will have to pay more for their car insurance, significantly more. And more. yeah. Philadelphia more. is leading with the largest increase in car insurance costs nationwide in 2024. The average full coverage premium in the Philly metro area, which includes Camden and Wilmington, surged by 100. from $1,872 to $4,753. That's a big jump. Uh, That's a big (laughs) jump. Okay. It is a big jump. And uh, that's on average more than 5% of the household income in Philadelphia. And one of the things I've loved about living in Delaware is that I literally saved like two grand on my car insurance.
1: But this is for the whole
0: Philly metro area. Yeah, this is for the Delaware is wrapped into this. Yeah, but I just feel like it's it's worse in the city. Yeah.
1: I can't. And they say what happened. (laughs) They
0: asked what happened. They said that insurance premiums are for the most part reactionary, affected by inflation, price of car parts, fatalities. You know, there have been an increase in fatalities since people got back on the road in 2021, as well as refunds that people got during the pandemic. So... I don't I don't know. But car insurance going up,
1: going up expensive. Okay, hopefully even out soon. Fingers Uh, crossed. Maybe in time for the twenty twenty six FIFA World Cup. What you probably already heard is coming to Philadelphia. The FIFA World Cup in twenty twenty six is going to be held all across North Mm -hmm. America, Mexico, U.S., Canada. There are going to be six games here in Philadelphia, which is really exciting. And also this is kind of a local tie. The final of the World Cup. The big finale mm. is going to be at MetLife Stadium in North Jersey. Oh. and NJ.com had a story today about how the Murphy administration and actually Phil Murphy personally was really pushing hard behind the mm-hmm. scenes for New Jersey to get that because everyone thought it was going to be at the big Cowboys Stadium down in Dallas mm-hmm. and it, New Jersey, ahead, Jersey. The Giants beat the Cowboys in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's going to be a big moment for Philly. Uh, it also comes in the 250th birthday of America, which is pretty cool. The semi-quincentennial. So, you know, this is this is a, a big deal for Philadelphia um, to play a part in what is the biggest sporting event in the world. And yes, I know about the Olympics. The World Cup mm-hmm. is the biggest sporting event in the world.
0: And shout out to the link. That's Eagles home turf. They've stepped up. They've been showcasing top-level soccer matches. And I got to say, Avi, Philly's staying booked and busy. This is a good thing for the city.
1: Can I throw a little rain on the parade? Yeah. Well, first, uh, trivia fact, the first ever sporting event at the Link was actually a soccer match. People don't know that. Before there was ever Mm -hmm. an American football game there, there was a soccer match there. You could look that up about 20 years ago. Um, So here's my rain on the parade, which is that this is, I said, it's the semi-quincentennial, 250 years since Mm -hmm. the signing of the Declaration. Big birthday for America. If you go back through history, 100-year birthday, 150-year birthday, the bicentennial 200. Philly had humongous city-changing events to mark mm-hmm. all of those occasions. The 100th anniversary basically created the Parkside neighborhood of Philly. Huge World's Fair. And
0: so what's happening now? 150, yeah. they
1: they basically created what became the stadium complex. Huge World Fairs. Bicentennial, they planned that for 10 years plus. Um, you can find there was huge headlines about that for years, and I do find it odd. We're coming up on two fifty, and I just haven't heard a lot about what Philly is doing. Like we're going to have the World Cup, we're yeah. going to have I think the baseball. But they've All-Star been working game. though. They've been working. I, I, yeah, it, it feels to me. We'll mm-hmm. see. It feels to me like it's a smaller scale mm-hmm. than what we've done in the past, and I don't know. This is. Just my opinion. This is qualitative, yeah. not quantitative. Yeah. I am curious if it's going to be kind of small potatoes compared to what Philly has typically done on these. Big Whoever
0: birthdays. is in charge of planning the 250th, 250th, give us a call. step it up. No, give yes. us a call. Come on. Give the us show. a call. Come on. the show. We want to hear what's going on. But they are working. I, I used to. I went to a big announcement a few years ago. There is work being done. OK. But we just need to hear about it. And okay. we want to bring you on studio, too. I want to feel it. Yes. Coming up. The big election case before the Supreme Court. Does former President Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection bar him from the presidency? We'll break it down and take your questions. The number 888-477-9499. Email studio2 at WHYY.org. We'll be right back.
1: All rise. Oye, Oye. Oye. Did I get it right, Counselor? You got it. All right, you got this is it. Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfmaner, and
0: I'm Cherry Gregg. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments around an election case with potentially enormous implications. The justices will weigh whether former President Donald Trump's role and the January 6th insurrection disqualifies him from the presidency. The case comes from Colorado, where the state's high court ruled that Trump should be removed from the primary ballot. They cited a post-Civil War provision in the 14th Amendment to keep insurrectionists from office.
1: It's a fascinating case, Sherry. We're going to try to walk Mm -hmm. through all of the arguments and the implications with two legal scholars. We're also going to talk about yesterday's federal appeals court ruling that the former president is not immune to criminal prosecution, a decision that Trump is asking the Supreme Court to review. Here with us in our studio is Kermit Roosevelt, constitutional law professor at the university of pennsylvania law school he actually wrote an amicus brief supporting the colorado court's decision welcome kermit to studio two thanks so much for having me also joining us is drexel university law professor lisa tucker welcome back to studio two lisa
2: Avi, I think that if this radio thing doesn't work out, you've got a future at the Supreme Court doing that. (laughs) Oh Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I I might check that out. (laughs) Very
2: nice.
1: (laughs) Of course. uh, While I'm auditioning for that, I do Mm -hmm. want to welcome folks uh, who have questions around the case or comments. Should the former president's actions on January 6th bar him from the presidency? Should a president have immunity from the law and be treated differently? 888-477-9499. You can also email Studio two at WHYY dot org.
0: And so Carmen, I wanna start here by looking at the Fourteenth Amendment, section three. And I wanna read a, a truncated version because it's pretty long, but it says in part, no person shall hold any office under the United States who having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Can you give us a little bit of context, Kermit, an understanding of the meaning historically and the use of Section 3? Because I understand it hasn't been used in over a century.
3: It hasn't been used much because it was responding to a particular historical problem. And the problem was, it's the end of the Civil War. The Union has won. The former Confederate states are going to be reintegrated back into the Union somehow. But the Republican Congress is very concerned that disloyal people will start taking government positions again. So the Confederacy had governments. Those governments were dissolved. The states are now making New governments, and they're going to be sending representatives and senators to Congress, and maybe people will be running for president. So, whether this covers the presidency is one of the issues. But the Republican Congress is concerned about letting traitors back into power. So, they actually debate different ways of doing this, different ways of trying to keep political control in the hands of loyal people. And what they ended up with is Section 3 which takes a relatively narrow set of people. It's people who held office and took an oath to support the Constitution and then broke that oath, and it says they can't serve in state or federal governments.
1: Okay, and then Colorado takes a look at this and maps it against what former President Trump did. What did that court see um, in this Section 3, you think, that made them rule the way they did?
3: Well, I think the argument is pretty straightforward. So, you know, you can say there are plausible arguments on both sides. I think there's probably enough legal room for the Supreme Court to go whichever way it wants to go. But it looks pretty straightforward to me to say, President Trump, he was the president, right? He took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And then on January 6th, he summoned a crowd of supporters to the Capitol. He gave them this speech. He knew that they were attacking the Capitol after a certain point. He did nothing to call them off for hours. In fact, at 2.24, this is one of the points that the Colorado litigants make, at 2.24, he fired off a tweet saying, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And it's after that that the protesters break through the police lines and really get into the Capitol.
1: Can I, can I just uh, zoom in on some of that real quick, Kermit? You mentioned not just his speech, but his conduct leading up to the speech, mm-hmm. the summoning of the crowd, and then his conduct after the speech. Because of course, the president's lawyers have pointed out he wasn't there when people stormed the Capitol. Um, so it's all of that, you think, that the, that the Colorado court looked at and that the U.S. Supreme Court might look at here.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely what the Colorado court looked at. Now, Trump's lawyers are saying you should just focus on this speech and you should treat this as a First Amendment problem and you should ask if he was inciting imminent unlawful activity. But I think that it makes sense if you're trying to figure out was this an insurrection to ask, was there a concerted plan there to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, which I think there was. I think the January 6th committee documented that pretty well. And then it turns violent. So now it's a violent attempt to prevent the transfer of power. It's a violent attempt to maintain as president and, you know, commander in chief of the armed forces with all of the things that that means, to maintain as president someone who is not legally entitled to hold that position. They're trying to take over the executive branch of the U.S. government. So when you think about it from that perspective, I think it certainly does look like an insurrection.
0: And Lisa Tucker, I want to bring you into the conversation here because there is an argument on the other side from the Trump lawyers here that this section three does not apply to presidents. Could you lay out the arguments from the Trump perspective?
2: Sure. And one thing that Professor Roosevelt and I do when we teach, you know, very entering law students in the first week of law school is that one of the primary jobs for a lawyer is to identify ambiguous terms. Mm. What are terms in a statute, legislation, a constitution that could be subject to more than one meaning? And then you try to make a good faith definition of that term on behalf of your client. And you do that using all kinds of tools. One, of course, being precedent, what has the court said before. And as Professor Roosevelt said, we don't have much of that here. And so what the Trump lawyers are trying to do is say that, for example, when they talk about officers, officers of the United States, that that term does not include the President of the Mm. United States. It doesn't include the President of the United States for several reasons. Because of some of the other people who are included in the list of Section 3, for example, they say, It goes from the most important to the least important. And so, if you were going to start with the most important, you'd start with the president. And the president isn't listed there. Senators are, representatives are,
0: a lot of state, yeah, state executives, but never explicitly the president. The president. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And then they point to other parts in the Constitution where they say the president is responsible for appointing officers. Well, if the president is a, responsible for appointing officers, then how can be he be an officer himself? Um, So they look at and there's also an argument that perhaps officers have to be appointed and a president is elected. So what they're doing is taking this word officer out Mm. of Section 3. Officers can be disqualified from future public office if they've previously taken this oath. And they're saying, yeah, sure, but Trump can't be an officer under a very careful textual reading of the Constitution. And there certainly are justices who, who you know, traditionally do look very, very closely at text and say, we have to go by what the text hmm. says, mm-hmm. whether or not it makes sense that if a president has been involved in an insurrection, then yeah, he probably shouldn't be president hmm. again.
1: Steve emailed us and said Colorado is 100% correct. The man incited... A terrorist attack on the Mm. U.S. Capitol. The language, Kermit, in Section 3 is engaged in insurrection. As a layperson, that does sound incredibly vague. Can we take anything from legal theory, from the Constitution itself, to try to understand what engaged in
3: means? Well, we can. So this is an area where history is probably useful because when the drafters of Section 3 used the phrase engaged in insurrection, you, you know would want to know what they thought they were saying. So, you'd look back to how the phrase was understood at that time, and it turns out, there are great historians who've done a lot of work on this, it turns out that in 1868 people had a very broad understanding of what it meant to engage in an insurrection. Um, and they were saying, if you sell shoes to the Confederates, you've engaged in an insurrection, mm. right? You've allied yourself with their cause, you've helped them. So, if you apply that test to what Trump did, where he's really sort of behind the whole thing, I think that's not a very difficult decision. Hmm.
0: Interesting. And if you are just tuning in, we are previewing tomorrow's sup- our argument before the U.S. Supreme Court. We would like for you to weigh in. The number is 888-477-9499. You can email studio2 at WHYY.org. What questions do you have around this case? Should the former president's actions on January 6th bar him from the presidency? We're speaking with Kermit Roosevelt, constitutional law professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Also, Lisa Tucker, a professor of law at Drexel's Klein School of Law. Uh, Lisa, I want to bring you back in because I want you to sort of talk about, I think Kermit touched on this, some of the, some of the, the legal precedent, some of what was happening at the time section three was written, but what does the law say about, you know, whether or not, um, you know, Trump's actions from January 6th would bar him? What, what, what precedent do we have before us?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, one question we have is whether the Supreme Court will even be concerned with whether this was an insurrection or not. And as Professor Roosevelt said, you know, that can be very, very broadly defined. And looking back at the history, which many of the justices, care deeply deeply Mm -hmm. about what did the people who wrote this amendment in the post-civil war era um, what many people including professor roosevelt call a second founding of the united states um, what did they intend that to mean and the trial court in colorado was pretty clear that yes this was an insurrection and so it seems like probably the way Trump is going to go in the oral argument, and I think what the justices will be most concerned with is are two things. Number one, you know, what does this officer language mean? And, you know, uh, Trump's lawyers have even tried to say that he didn't pledge to support the Constitution because because the, constant, the, the the oath that he took as president didn't include the word support. It says something like protect, preserve, and defend. So he didn't swear to support it, so it doesn't apply to him, right? Um, but the second thing that the justices are always thinking about is how will this play out? How is it gonna play out immediately? How is it gonna play out the next time a case like this comes to us, if it does? And there are all kinds of concerns that the court is going to have. You know, the last case of this kind of import that the Supreme Court dealt with in election law was Bush v. Mm
0: -hmm, Gore 24
2: Mm -hmm. years ago. And I'm old enough to remember what the world was Mm -hmm, like right around then, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, waking up in the morning to hear we actually don't know who's president and the Supreme Court deciding to wade into that territory. And Justice O'Connor, who was on the court at the time said several years later, she thought it was a mistake. She thought it was probably a mistake that the Supreme Court decided to hear and decide Bush v. Gore, because it cast a shadow on the legitimacy of the court wading into the political sphere. The court's got to be concerned about that right now. Mm. The court has got to be concerned about handing the election, possibly, or at least majorly influencing the election. Or if they take this away from Trump, if they say you cannot be on the ballot and make no mistake about it. um, Literally, this would just apply to Colorado. But if the Supreme Court says you are disqualified, it ends up applying to all Mm -hmm. of the state ballots. And even if there were a write in campaign, even if people you know his supporters said everyone in the country is going to write him in. Under Section 3, he wouldn't be allowed to take office because he's disqualified. Yeah. So the court has got to be thinking about, you know, some scholars have said, I read something this morning where a scholar said, the the chaos and the violence that could ensue mm-hmm. would make January 6th look like a Sunday picnic. And and they've got to be worried about that as well.
1: Well, let me uh, let me read a comment here from Chris, who says my comment's simple. Trump's not above the law. Let's be clear. He has over 90 indictments. If this were the other way around with Clinton or Obama, he would have called for the 14th Amendment any time he would have called for it, October 31st. Thanks for that comment, Chris. That gets into the politics of all this, Kermit. And you wrote in your amicus Mm -hmm. brief, uh, it is the responsibility of courts to enforce the Constitution not to pick and choose among its provisions based on assessments of their wisdom or the consequences of enforcement. And yet many people are worried in this case about precisely that, the consequences of of enforcement. You're saying block all of that out?
3: Well, that is what the role of the court is supposed to be. And this Supreme Court has told us repeatedly, this is sort of one of the mantras of the originalists, that they don't make decisions about whether a constitutional provision is wise or good or will have good consequences when it's enforced. They just follow the choices made by the drafters. I think that's not necessarily the case a lot of the time. A lot of these cases, it's sort of ambiguous. You've got an old provision. How does it apply in modern circumstances with modern gun technology, which is very different, for instance? Um, This case, I think, is actually pretty clear, though. So one thing is I don't think this case is very close. I don't think it's a difficult one. I think it's pretty clear that the answer is Trump is disqualified. But then the second point is if the consequences are going to be so terrible— Actually, the drafters of the 14th Amendment, in their wisdom, gave the political process a way to handle that, which is they allowed Congress, by a two-thirds vote, to remove this disability. And Congress did that over and over again. Congress enacted very broad amnesty. So if the Supreme Court says Trump is disqualified, that's actually not necessarily the end. It doesn't mean we're plunged into chaos because... Republican voters elect someone who's not eligible to hold the office. It could be that Congress will then go ahead and remove the disability. They would override, mm-hmm. yeah. I want to read this email. From-
1: politically,
2: that seems really unlikely given because the- there the-
3: isn't yeah. a two-thirds ter- majority Congress. of Republicans mm-hmm. in in both sure.
0: Okay, yeah. And I, I want to read this email from Stacy, who says, "Keeping Trump off the ballot is not about fair; it's about law." I, I want to ask both of you because you you have these connections to the court. What's going on in the court? Is there a way for them to not take the case at all because this is a very political, it it, it could look very political given the six to three conservative makeup of the court. And I'll start with you, Kermit. Is there a way for them to just avoid ruling in this case at all? And what would that lead to?
3: I think not really. So, you know, as long as courts were rejecting these challenges, I think it was possible for the Supreme Court to stay out of it and say, Trump's on the ballot, we're just going to let the political process play out. But now that Colorado and Maine have disqualified him, I think Supreme Court intervention to give us a uniform national answer really is necessary. And I'm sure that there are some justices who are very unhappy that it's come to that. I think John Roberts probably doesn't want this case, because it's hard to see a way out that doesn't damage the court's legitimacy with some big constituency out there. But I don't really think that they can avoid a decision here.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's a comment from William on Facebook. Mm -hmm. One of the people who would probably disagree if if the court does uh, keep Trump off the ballot, Mm -hmm. the liberal witch hunt against Trump needs to be stopped, and it goes on from there. I don't really need to give you more of what William says, but you can get called it unlawful. Yes. Um, So look, uh, let me let me throw this back to you, Lisa Tucker. If indeed the court takes a political middle road here or tries mm-hmm. to wiggle out of it in some way. Can't that also damage their legitimacy? I mean, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to play both sides and get away with your reputation intact.
2: Sure is. And, and that's one really good reason why uh, many people say, gosh, being on the Supreme Court would be one of the hardest jobs ever. Yes, because Trump's supporters are not going to take anything other than an absolute victory here. And people who really do see this as an insurrection and, and Trump guilty of criminal conduct are aghast at the idea that Section 3 would not apply. One possible application could be that they could try to decide on very narrow grounds based on states rights that states have a right to decide how to run their 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 elections and that at least in the primaries uh the state of colorado could say he can't be on the primary ballot but the Mm -hmm. problem that that then raises is a few months down the road we're dealing with the general election and the general election presumably he would again assert that he had a right to be on the ballot these ballots are printed and early voting starts way ahead of the general election. So it would probably be just a few months before the court would have to take it up again. And so it really is hard to see how the court ducks this. But I absolutely agree with Professor Roosevelt. I think that particularly John Roberts is just sick to his stomach mm-hmm. at the thought of having to deal with this and at the thought of, um you know, especially on the heels of other Supreme Court opinions that the public has struggled to understand much of the public. For example, Dobbs, the, the case that overruled Roe v. Wade. And in that case, as Professor Roosevelt referred to, the court said, you know, we don't care about the ramifications. We don't care about political pressure. We care about doing what's right and looking to the Constitution. And if that's the case, then I agree that this could be a very easy case for the court to look at the Constitution and say, how is it possible that pretty much everybody else in government can be disqualified from the ballot for engaging in insurrection, but the president himself cannot? And that really leads us into what the D.C. Circuit decided yesterday, the, Mm the appeals court, that the president is not immune. The president does not hold some kind of special immunity post being president. He's a regular citizen and he should be subject to the laws of this country.
0: And I, I want to actually pivot to that, Lisa, and bring you, Kermit, as well into this, because of that federal appeals court un- held unanimously, and this was a panel, um, that the federal charges against Trump uh, should move forward decimating his claims for what would be absolute immunity, uh, except, for, uh, except in light of an impeachment. What are some of the takeaways from that case? And then when you look at it uh, in, in, in alignment with this current case about the Colorado ballot, I mean, there are major political implications there as well.
3: Well, there certainly are political implications because we've got criminal prosecutions that will go forward. So that's going to interact with the campaign in a somewhat unpredictable way. But there are polls, actually, that say Trump would lose some support if he were convicted. So that that could have an effect. I mean, my general reaction to the D.C. Circuit decision is, why are we even talking about this? I mean, it would have been a shocking, momentous decision if it had gone the other way, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. But what they said is just what I think every American would assume. And interestingly, it's exactly what Trump's lawyers were arguing in the second impeachment proceeding. So if you can remember back when he was being impeached for his role in the January 6th insurrection. We have insurrection. courts for this, yeah. Yeah. He yeah. was saying, wait, I'm out of office. I'm not president anymore. Yeah. You can't impeach me. Prosecute me, yeah. right? That's yeah. what the criminal justice system mm-hmm. is
1: for. I just want to make sure we bring in a few more comments because we got some yeah, good ones rolling in. Yeah, we have some in. good ones, yeah. um, Ross has a question. I believe there are 177 members of Congress who voted to decertify the election. Why aren't they also subject to this law? Interesting question from Mm -hmm. Ross. Also want to bring in an email from Matt uh, who says, I'm not in favor of Trump, but if he says he believed he won and was defending the Constitution... Is that a sound Mm. argument? Sort of the I didn't know any better, you know, ignorance is bliss. And I was actually working to help the country, not hurt the country. Right. So, Lisa, could you take either one of those? Which one of those stands out to you?
2: Uh, Gosh, I guess the second one, if he really thought he was innocent and so he really thought this election was his and it truly had been stolen from him. Uh, I guess that, you know, what I would say is, first of all, he has advisors. Second of all, he had a vice president who mm-hmm, right. was refusing to go forward with that plan of attack. And third, even if you believe that, you don't need to engage in the kind of, you know, we have a rule of law for a reason. It's exactly to prevent the kind of thing that happened on January 6th, peaceful resolution of these kinds of, of conflicts and and issues. And that's where he went wrong, however innocent he was. And again, the Colorado uh, Supreme Court, or the Colorado Trial Court found that, yes, indeed, he did engage in insurrection.
0: Wow. And Catherine says, I'm afraid of what will happen if Trump is disallowed from appearing on the ballot. Some of his followers showed themselves on January 6th to be capable of violence. How will they respond to something like this? I mean, Kermit, you've already said the court doesn't really consider this? Or should, well, it? Or should said, it consider it? Yeah. I said,
3: according to the view of the judicial role that they say they have, they shouldn't. I think it's, it's certain that they do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they think about the court's institutional reputation. They think about what the consequence is going to be. Um, it's not clear that there's any way to avoid that risk, though, because mm-hmm. if they say he's on the ballot and they say, go defeat him at the polls, let's see democracy in action, and then the American people do, well, that's exactly what they did in 2020. And what happened then? January 6th is what happened then. So, you know, what reason do we have to think that he would accept losing an election?
0: And when these two cases are taken together, um, Lisa and Kermit, any predictions on how the outcome of these cases could impact one another and then the 2024 election? And you each have 30 seconds because we're about to wrap up.
3: Yeah. Well, very hard to say. Um, You know, I think there are Is data suggesting that a criminal conviction will hurt Trump? Um, If the Supreme Court says he's not qualified to be president, certainly that's going to hurt him. I think there will be chaos. There will be anger in response. If the Supreme Court says he is qualified, I think that probably helps him.
0: Yeah. Any last word, Lisa?
2: I think this is not – this is so far from the end of this. I think there are going to be many more legal challenges where he takes on positions that – courts of one type or another are going to have to decide. That's going to continue until the election in November and well beyond.
1: Mm. Well, probably not good for the country, but we would love to have both of you back on to talk more about it because you did a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you, Kermit Roosevelt, constitutional law professor at Penn. Kermit, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Lisa Tucker, law professor at Drexel. Thank you, Lisa.
0: Thank you, Avi. Coming up, there's a new hit musical in town, Mrs. Doubtfire. And we've got the two stars with us in studio. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. was going to do it in my Mrs. Doubtfire voice, but I chickened out. I'm sorry. We have someone here who can do it better. Uh, The 1993 film Mrs. Doubtfire is a classic for a reason, Mm -hmm. a perfectly over-the-top performance by the late Robin Williams in the movie's lead role, an unforgettable performance by Sally Field, one hilarious moment after another, alongside more serious and relatable themes about divorce, love, children, and marriage. The Broadway adaptation,
0: adaptation, excuse me, of Mrs. Doubtfire was an instant hit, and now the show has arrived at the Academy of Music here in Philadelphia. Yay! <laughs> Critics call it wonderful, heartwarming, and laugh-out-loud funny. And a lot of that is because of the talent of the two guests joining us here. In the studio right now. Rob McClure is a two-time Tony nominated performer who stars in the title role of Daniel Hillard and Mrs. Doubtfire and Maggie Lakis. Plays Miranda Hilliard in real life. The two are a South Philly married couple. We love that. <laughs> Rob and Maggie, welcome to studio two. Thanks Thank for you.
4: having us.
1: How did this happen, guys? <laughs> Were you approached together by a casting director? Did you audition separately? How does a real-life married couple mm-hmm. end up playing one of the most famous divorced couples yeah. in cinema history? Pretty cool. Uh, it's pretty miraculous. Cool. We do not happen? take it
5: lightly. Well, I I, I uh, was with the show from the very beginning, from the early mm-hmm. workshops, and I did the out-of-town tryout at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, and then we came to Broadway, and then they were asking about the tour, and um, Maggie and I, in our 18 years together, fit married 15 of those mm. have done two national tours together already and uh, she went in an audition for jerry Zachs, this legendary director who's epic to work with and uh and he loved her so they offered us the tour together and we have our five-year-old daughter sadie who Aww. hasn't started school yet so we're like one more big Less work adventure, adventure let's yeah, do it
1: school. can we talk about that maggie what what is that like for this family like like she's just about to go to school and that's a huge i'm sure Mom, dad moment. (laughs) I can't even imagine. Um, But you get to go on this, like, kind of one last trip together.
4: Yeah, I mean, the timing just seemed kind of perfect when the idea was kind of floated to us and uh, I was asked to audition. Um, It seemed like, well, I mean, it kind of couldn't time out more perfectly. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. it seems to be pointing us towards this. uh, The fact that she has this last year to, like really be kind of footloose and and (laughs) see the country. And it was really great because Rob mentioned we had toured twice uh, together before. Yeah. So we had toured and seed the con- seen the country as adults. We'd check out speakeasies and you know restaurants. All and- the history and the architecture. <laughs> yeah. and, and now and we're looking through looking at the country through a five year old's eyes. Like what would she like to see? Yeah. So we're yeah. kinda getting to rediscover the country through every her eyes.
5: Every zoo, every aquarium, every <laughs> children's <laughs> yeah. museum with now. Like, Please
1: <laughs> touch Museum exactly. San Francisco. <laughs> <down." Yeah>. oh,
0: <laughs> that's, that's so, so I wanna tee up this clip. Um, of you Rob from the original Broadway cast recording and we'll talk about it in just a second take a listen everyone
4: it is this
5: court's decision to award sole custody to Mrs. Hillard no Mr. Uh, Hillard will have visitation rights once a week your honor once a week isn't enough I've been with them every day of their lives I'm sorry I'm sorry I just permission to address the court please I need them sir and they need me Lydia's young still, but she's old enough To start going down all the pathways of love Some will be easy, but some will be tough At times she'll be swimming in oceans of anguish At times she'll be dancing on air Through all of her highs and her lows I wanna be there. Mm.
0: First of all, let me just say in watching some of the clips I can see why you're Tony nominated oh, for, that's very for that sweet role. Of you to say. So you've been playing Mrs. Doubtfire for yeah. a while. Yeah. Um, even though there were lots of stops and starts. Yeah. Please tell me what do you love about this character?
5: It's a it's a parent who would do anything for his kids, you know, and as Sadie our Sadie grows up, I start to realize that more and more the lengths to which I would go to to be with her, and it, it, underneath this incredible farce, right, one of the funniest farces of all time, is this bleeding heart, is this real story about a family falling apart and what they would do to keep it together, and um, and it only gets richer with time. The more I do it, the more I find, and with Robin Williams' beautiful legacy behind it, to sort of as a roadmap, and uh, and it's really touching audiences in ways we could have never predicted when we set out to make this musical and that clip what I love about that song is it's one of the great examples in the show of why they chose certain moments to sing because that's the crucial thing if you're going to adapt a movie into a musical why does it sing and if it doesn't have a good reason to sing don't make it a musical but when you get into the nitty gritty of the emotional vernacular of the film, a lot of that in depth stuff, what the family struggle is, is the stuff that sings so beautifully yeah. um, and uh, really makes it a richer experience for the audience. And the stakes of live theater are always higher, right? That's the thrill. All these quick changes, right? I do 31 quick changes in and out of Mrs. Doubtfire. And, uh, that is the 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 stakes of them being alive is what makes the magic
0: and quick follow up because you look good as mrs dalfire and i'm sure you know maggie you feel some kind of way of looking at it like you are pretty good and and but you're moving you're dancing oh, yeah. and you have like a mask going you have all this yeah this, this stuff Body i mean suits and, yeah. you're lean and mean i mean how much <laughs> do you sweat in this what's oh. going on under there like it's hot
5: i mean maggie gets the front row seats you get yeah. to see
4: all this stuff. oh yeah you know it's funny during because because mrs dalfire existed on Broadway during COVID, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, I never was backstage, so I never got to see it up close. I never got to see the whole process up close. I saw it as an audience member, you know, from my seat. So we were rehearsing in New York, and he would wear a pair of glasses and that was when he was Mrs. Doubtfire he was wearing glasses and it wasn't until we got to Tech in Buffalo and he came out in full Doubtfire and I was like whoa! Who is this elderly Scottish woman? (laughs) It is quite the transformation and up close it really is like I don't see him in it you know it really is and it has to be or else Miranda looks foolish for not being for being fooled you know so it has to be a great transformation and it is it really is.
5: Every now and then Maggie will look at me on stage it's very sweet she'll go She's so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, dear.
1: (laughs) I love that voice. Um, Maggie, let me ask you about one of the show's central themes, which is divorce. Mm -hmm. This movie was made in 1993. Mm -hmm. The way people think about divorce, the way people think about family, has changed a lot in 30 years. How do you think audiences are responding differently to the themes of the show than they might have 30 years ago? and how are you viewing the script differently than you might have 30 years ago
4: Oh absolutely I remember when the film came out it was it was kind of a landmark because it was the first time in a movie that the happy ending wasn't that they got back together it didn't have a romantic happy ending but it still was a happy ending and that was really special and I remember it being so important to friends of mine who came from families that had that were divorced so it just meant so much that they were their family was being seen as not in like the bad the bad or a sad ending that you could celebrate it and find this new normal and I think it just resonates even more now you know divorce is still obviously you know is it 52 percentages of marriages yeah, in divorce I- but I think how we define family and that's what the show touches on now and how it has kind of been brought to you know the now is that it talks about how you define a family and what is important to be a family and and i think that's the centralized message of the show at the end is as long as there's love you can make your family be whatever it is you want it to be
5: and i think that while the stigma around divorce has changed considerably in the last 30 years The turmoil, particularly for Mm. the kids, is the same. That has not changed. Watching mom and dad fight to the point where they don't want to live together anymore is not any different now than it was 30 years ago. And this show sort of wraps its arms around those kids. And I have a folder at home of over 250 letters from children to grandparents who have written me. Uh, Who have written me and some who have also written Mrs. Doubtfire, which just is the sweetest thing I can, you know, so many notes end with thank you, Mrs. Doubtfire. Mm. Um, But it could be, you know, I've gotten letters from people in their 60s saying, hey, I thought I had worked through my parents' divorce. Turns out (laughs) I still (laughs) had stuff to hash (laughs) out (laughs) because I was weeping in the 12th row. Um, But uh, yeah, it really is amazing how much this story still has to say in addition to the laughs.
0: Yeah. I think about the voice, number one, whole voice. And so and sort of how comedy is a vehicle to talk about something so serious. Um, What lessons did you learn about using comedy to to tell such a serious, heartfelt story?
4: I like to call it the Trojan horse. You know, you wrap it in a comedy and people go, oh, I can. They, they let their guard down a little bit. And then, you know, if you make them care, our director Jerry, Jerry Zach says yeah. that the sound of laughter is the sound of an audience falling in love. So you, you get them to fall in love with the story and the characters, and then you can take them places that they wouldn't expect. And so- then when
5: characters they've fallen in love with go through something, they care. Like, because yeah. you've cracked them open. With For the instance, laughter.
4: I think they're very smart in the show because how they musicalize it is they kind of expand upon the characters of the children and the ex-wife Miranda, who I play, and it's a difficult role to not let her get kind of villainized. You know, she's the in anti- is his antagonist in a way, and we want the audience to be on his side because mm. it is called Mrs. Doubtfire, but we don't want to villainize her. And I think what the show smartly does is it withholds her side of the story. It's clear in the beginning that she's right, but it withholds her side (laughs) of the story Um, to to Act 2. And there's this great moment where she kind of opens up to Mrs. Doubtfire and sings a song about that she didn't want a divorce. She wanted desperately to make it work, Mm. and she just couldn't get him to hear her and meet her halfway. And uh, he's forced to sit there and listen. And it's the first time he actually hears her.
1: Well, folks, wow. you'll check it out. Mrs. Doubtfire on stage now at the Academy of Music through Sunday, February 18th. Rob McClure, title role of Daniel Hillard slash Mrs. Doubtfire. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Uh, Maggie Lakeus also plays uh, Miranda Hillard. They're married in real life. <laughs> and by the way, thank the you South both Philly, for showing that South you can Point. make it on the big stage from South Philly yeah. right. take that New York <laughs> that's right um, let's wrap up the show yeah subscribe to Studio 2 wherever you get your
0: podcasts don't forget to rate and review our producers are Debbie Builder Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes Al Banks is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly I'm Cherry Gregg
1: I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron we will talk to you tomorrow